Good morning. Children may be dismissed at this time. Everyone else, I encourage you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn in it back to John chapter 20, page 906. John 20, verses 19 through 23. We'll actually spend two weeks in this text, full disclosure. We're only going to get through two verses this morning, so don't panic. Uh, They are a good two verses, though. Let's begin with two recent headlines that caught my eye. These headlines are your hook this morning. Remember, the hook is here to to catch your attention, to, to draw you in, to to compel you and to convince you to listen. Here's the hook. Two headlines, two Fridays. Last Friday, Newsweek ran a headline, Americans suffering at rate rarely reached. Now, even apart from the rate rarely reached, which I really love, it is a striking headline. How are Americans suffering at a rate rarely reached? Well, the article is about a survey of of the perception that people have of the quality of their lives. The rate rarely reached is the number of people categorizing themselves as suffering, according to this life evaluation index, whatever that is. Americans are generally more pessimistic about the quality of their lives, and the article concludes saying that "Ah, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly why. That's headline one. Headline two, Friday, two days ago, in the Washington Post, you probably saw this one. Oh, this is so good. I love it. New York City designates social media a public health hazard. Love it. Love it. Another headline went with social media declared an environmental toxin. It's like radiation, like toxins, poison. Love it. And I generally don't love what our government does, and I'm not even getting into whether or not government should be making such declarations. That's not what this is about. I don't care. But I love that these people, who it at least sometimes seems like they can't really get anything right, hey, here's a safe place to come do uh, illegal, deadly drugs. Come on, come do this over here. Right? It's dumb. Even they get that social media is stupid and dangerous and bad for you. And the focus is on how it's particularly bad for young people. But why is social media a public health hazard? Many reasons. But the article focuses on the dangerous and addictive aspects of the apps that are specifically part of their design so that big tech companies can can profit off of your attention by, by capturing your attention and commodifying it. Profit for them. The result for you, according to the article, feelings of loneliness, isolation, and depression, again, particularly in young people. Why does so-called social media result in feelings of isolation and loneliness? Many reasons. Simply uh, focus on two. Because social media actually drives and forces and focuses your attention all on yourself, all those things that you're posting about and reading about, to draw attention to yourself. And because second... Social media creates the illusion of connection and community while actually hindering and harming true connection and community. It feels like presence when it is actually absence. 
Last week, Mary was maudlin because she perceived absence. Americans are suffering at a rate rarely reached because they perceive absence. Well, the absence of all sorts of different things, but, but one of those things has to be the breakdown and the absence of, of connection and community, the loss of relationship and presence. Mary was sad when she perceived absence, and yet her reality was presence. And Mary was only moved from sad to glad when she realized her error, when she realized presence. This morning we are going to talk about presence. We have been talking the last couple of weeks about the importance of story, of, what, of knowing what kind of story you find yourself in. God's word is here in part to tell you what kind of story you find yourself in. It's to here to tell us who the author of this story is, who the main character of this story is, to tell us the plot and purpose of the story, the resolution and the very good ending of the story. You are constantly talking to yourself. You are weaving your circumstances and your experiences into a narrative. What kind of story are you telling yourself? Is it a comedy or a tragedy? A happy story or a sad story? Whatever story you're telling yourself, in life you are going to experience some really dark and difficult things. There are going to be troubles and tribulations. There is going to be great potential for discouragement and despair. What can we do about that? What hope can there be when things are bad and we are sad? Presence is going to be the answer this morning. The Bible is a story all about the presence of God. You could argue that that's the theme of the story, the presence of God. Our passage this morning is a story all about the presence of God. Our help and our hope must revolve around the presence of God. So let's get into it. The main thing that I want you to see this morning will be point number one, the very much present Christ. We start there and everything else is going to, to flow from that. And everything that you're looking for ultimately flows from that. But I want us to look at the things that John emphasizes that flow from that. Point number two, we will see peace in the presence of Christ. I desperately want that. Point number three is going to be gladness in the presence of Christ. I desperately want that. Then we'll be ready to come back and consider mission in the presence of Christ. I may not so much uh, want that one as the other ones, but maybe that's because I haven't yet truly comprehended and appreciated points one through three. So that's our goal this morning, uh, the precious presence of God and the peace and the gladness that come with that. So let me read our text for you, John 20. All of 19 through 23 sort of go together, so I'll read all of them, but we're only going to get through 19 and 20 because 21 through 23 are fascinating so we're going to give them a whole week. But I'll read for you John 20, starting in verse 19. Please pay attention. Pay attention particularly to the presence. This is what God wants to say to you today. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then 
The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's stop there. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help in this time. Father, we believe that you are the transcendent God and that you are just as much the imminent God. We believe that you are God who is with us. And we believe that you are with us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel. We, be, we believe that Christ is very much present with us this morning uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, mediated through the means of your living and active word. So, Father, I desperately need you to help me, to work through me as I seek to preach and proclaim and explain and apply your living and active word. Father, we all desperately need you to wake us up and to open our eyes to reality and to glory and to beauty when we are so caught up and consumed with that which is of uh, comparatively no importance. Father, show us Christ in this time. Show us, teach us, help us to know by faith that he is with us always. Help us to know objectively that we have peace with you because of Christ. And that we have eternal potential for peace and for gladness as we learn um, by your grace to realize and remember what we have in Jesus Christ. So, Father, please do that for us in this time. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Father, please do through me what I cannot do on my own. Father, show us Christ through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one, we begin with the very much present Christ which is very much amazing because the Christ who is present in our text, alive in our text, just died. And death is sort of the definition of absence. You'll sometimes see it in a movie or a show. There will be a death and someone will attempt to bring comfort by saying something like, oh, she'll, she'll always be with you. Don't say that because that's not true. We've got to start taking death a little more seriously. Life is so good because death is so bad. The gospel is such good news because death is such bad news. Apart from Christ, it is in no way true that your loved one will always be with you. Death is the king of terrors. Death is the great intrusion. It is the enemy. Death is absence. And yet, Christ has died. And here he is very much present. And when we read this in light of the whole storyline of Scripture, it's actually even better than it first appears. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week. Stop. Why did John write it like that? It's kind of repetitive. Seems unnecessary. He could have just said, on the evening of that day, the doors being locked where the disciples were. He didn't do that. He said, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. And so we first have to remember why that is important. So important that John feels the need to say it again. Look back at verse 1. Remember, we've already seen him do this. Chapter 19 ends in verse 41 with Jesus dead and laid in a tomb. 
Chapter 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week. Remember that again and again, Jesus has been teaching up until this point that the Son of Man must suffer and die and rise again on the third day. So it's striking when John doesn't say three days later or on the third day after his death, but says on the first day of the week. And now here again in verse 19, he repeats himself. That day, the first day of the week. I've shared with you before my start of a run mantra. The first mile is the worst mile. Now for me currently, the first mile is the only mile. Oh well. Um, but this is the opposite of that. The first day is not the worst day, but the best day. The first day is of first importance. And John is trying to indicate that. And he is trying to connect this day to the first day. He is trying to connect this Genesis to that Genesis, this beginning to the beginning. John loves Genesis. And it's the very first verse that is the very best verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everything else depends upon that. And verse 3, on the first day, God said, let there be light. And there was light. So God's first word is light and light is life. God's first word is life. And God's word is life because God is life. That's the whole point of the story from beginning to end, life. We just talked in Bible study about how the beginning and the end of a story or the beginning and end of a section of scripture go a long way in telling you what the middle is all about. Remember Ephesians 1.3 begins, Blessed be God, praise and worship this God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then the section ends, verse 14, with to the praise of his glory. So we begin with praise and we end with praise and we know then that the whole thing is about praise. The right response and recognition of the glory and grace of this God who does everything for his people. Everything to give life to his people. And the beginning and end of that text make it clear. Well, how does the whole Bible begin and end? With presence. With God with his people. That's what Genesis 1 is all about. The king creates his kingdom. The king creates life. And then he creates the special place of his presence where he will be with his people in the garden in perfect fellowship and communion with his people. It's all about relationship. Relationship is life. Relationship is happiness. God is life. God is the God of happiness. So true life and happiness are found only in fellowship, relationship with him. That's what we were made for. That's how the Bible begins. That's what the garden is all about. What about the end? Well, I read it for you last week. But it has been such a comfort to me that I'm going to read it to you again. The very end. Revelation 21, 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God. That's where you want to be. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The result, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the end. And it's a good ending. I cannot conceive 
of a better ending. Death shall be no more. But notice that preposition repeated three times. With, with, with. God, with, man, presence. So the beginning of the story and the end of the story and everything else in between is all about the presence of God. The question that the whole Bible is answering is how can the holy and happy presence of God be restored to sinful, unhappy man? And the answer is covenant. You thought I was going to say Jesus, but it's covenant first. And this is what covenant is about. Look down at verse 23 for a second. I'm not going to tackle it today. I've had a couple of questions about church membership recently. Maybe it's time for a church membership sermon. Good news. Verse 23 is a church membership verse. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What does that mean? Come back and we'll see. It's another hook. A cliffhanger. But church membership is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Right, Melissa is stuck with me. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health till death do us part. Right? That, that, that's an oath that we took before the Lord. Covenants are for solemn, serious, significant relationship. Covenants are about communion, committed communion. I have given you before my convoluted covenant conception. Covenants, condition, creator, creature, communion. Come on, that's nine C's in a row that I just gave you. But I have finally realized that that's probably not the most clarifying uh, but the big idea is that covenant is about communion. It's about relationship, the relationship between God and man, the holy God and sinful man. Covenant is how that can happen. Covenant is how presence is possible. I have been reading through Exodus this week, and on Friday I was in chapter 25, and the second half of Exodus can feel like it was designed to be read by architects or general contractors or something, right? It's, it's, it's all about the very detailed plans for the tabernacle and all that goes with it. And then the very detailed description of the execution of the plans for the tabernacle and all that goes with it. Why? Presence. You've got to keep that in mind as you're reading what can feel a little tedious sometimes. It's all about presence. And chapter 25 is about the very, the very heart of the tabernacle, the ark of the covenant. And God says there, in the ark you shall put the testimony, the, the word, the witness that I shall give you. So there's, there's the law of God, the word of God. The ark of God's covenant contains the witness of his word. So again, the word is at the center. It's contained inside the ark. What happens at the ark? What's the point of it? There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you, with, with, with. Right after the ark, we get the plans for this table that sits outside in front of the ark. What's the table for? And you shall set on it the bread of the presence. And the whole thing is about the presence of God with his people. The tabernacle was designed to be a little a microcosm, a, a sort of reflection of Eden. The, the first place of God's presence with his people. But then you keep reading in Exodus, 
you're going through all these things, then all of a sudden you get to this big, massive veil, and you read, and the veil shall separate you, for you, the holy place from the most holy. So there's been presence, 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 and then all of a sudden there's separation. Why? It's because of sin. Remember, we looked at the cherubim last week. We saw the two angels sitting at the head and at the foot of the, of the tomb. Sin, the sin of man and the woman, remember, they're, they're cast out of the garden. They're separated from the presence of God, separated from the God of life and the place of life. And then the, the cherub is set out front with this flaming sword guarding the garden. I was pretty excited this week when I found a board book version of the garden, the curtain, and the cross at the free book table. Uh, we can't give Vera normal books because she destroys them. It's my least favorite part of Vera. Uh, Vera, we don't eat books, right? Don't eat books. Board books are safer, and this one's wonderful. I've mentioned it before, parents. If you haven't yet got the garden, the curtain, and the cross for your little ones, get it. But there's a refrain that runs throughout the book. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Our sin bars us from the presence of God, the holy presence of God, the happy presence of God. And that's why Christ has come. That's why Christ has died. He has done it because of our sin, my sin. God is life. With God is life. Sin rejects God. Sin separates us from life. The wages of sin is death. But God... But the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who takes on flesh to take on our sin, live for us, die for us, and then here we see him having risen again, taking care of that sin that separates, paying that death debt that is absence. That's what he has done. That's the only way for the presence to be restored. And that's what the whole of the Bible is about. And that's what we should be all about. Now we're finally ready to go and be back in our text. Look at verse 19 again. Again, the first day is indicating, pointing us back, connecting us to the big story, telling us that this is a new beginning, that this too is about life. But the scene begins after that with, well, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Stop. Remember in John, Jews equals religious authorities, right? the, the leaders of the Jews. Why would the disciples be fearing them? Because they just killed Jesus. But hold on, look back at verse 18. Mary, maudlin no more, is on mission. She sent and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. So they've been told. And John and Peter are there. Remember two weeks ago, they've been in and seen the empty tomb. Or the tomb that is full only of Christ's grave clothes. In verse 8, remember, we saw that John believes. But here they are, all gathered together. I assume that the women are probably there as well. They've seen and they've heard these things, and they're still afraid. And it is in the context of all of this that the kindness of Christ shines forth all the more. Back to 19. All that hiding, afraid, fear, Jesus came and stood among them. There's the presence, the risen Christ, the victorious over death Christ. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is right there with them. Everything depends 
upon the presence of Christ. Jesus came and stood among them. Everything depends upon the presence of Christ. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Everything depends upon the presence of Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is a promise from the risen, reigning Christ to all of his people. If you are in Christ, then Christ is very much present with you, regardless of what you may be perceiving or feeling right now. Regardless of what might feel like absence in Christ, it is actually only ultimately presence. And now here's where it gets just really, really good. What is the result of the presence of this Christ? So much. But let's start with point number two. Peace in the presence of Christ. Don't miss the end of verse 19. We're told the disciples are afraid. John highlights that the doors are locked because they are afraid. Then Jesus comes in and stands among them. How? No idea. Many assume that the risen Christ or the glorified body can pass through walls. It's possible. It doesn't, no, it doesn't say that. The text never says. Calvin is not a fan of this interpretation, and he attributes it to Rome's need for a spiritual, infinite, not contained in one space uh, body of Christ for the purpose of the Mass. Uh, again, I don't know. Maybe the miracle is that he can open locked doors. Right? It doesn't, the text does not tell us. Whatever is going on, it's, it's not the point. The point is the presence of Christ. The point is the word of Christ. The disciples are failures. They could not have failed more spectacularly. The disciples are fearful. They must also be full of confusion. I think Mary's there. They are hearing Mary. John is there. John is believing. But they're clearly not all on the same page yet. Or Jesus wouldn't have to do what he does in the next verse. So there's lack of clarity. There's confusion. There's probably conflict. Conflict among themselves. Of course, you're the one that Jesus loved. Of course, you're saying this, right? They're probably mad at John. They're not trusting uh, Mary. There's, there's conflict. Undergirding that is possibly... The feeling that they all might have, that they might be in conflict with the Lord. They didn't believe him. They left him. They let him down. Wait, he's risen? Like, is he, is he mad? Like, what's, what's going to happen here? There, there could be conflict without and conflict within. And nothing is worse than both conflict without and conflict within. Augustine writes in his Confessions of a Time of Great Grief, and this line has always stuck with me, I became a puzzle to myself. And how insightfully and uncomfortably true is that? We are very much puzzles uh, to our own selves. Right? Internal conflict, confused, unclear thoughts, agony. External conflict. We've already seen that relationship with life is life. That's why relational conflict is, is agony. Conflict strikes at the, the heart of the thing that is meant to be life and joy and peace. And the external conflict only results in further internal conflict, which cycles and overflows and spirals often into more external conflict. All that's bad enough. But the perception of conflict with God himself, so that there's fear, there's confusion, there's the very real possibility of conflict Amongst themselves, the possibility of the perception and fear of conflict with Christ himself. Into verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
Hey, what a wonderful word. I got dropped right into the middle of the fear and the confusion and the conflict. In John, the first word that the failed disciples hear out of the mouth of the risen Christ is a word of peace. Shalom in Hebrew, Irene in Greek. The root of that word we think is, is ira, which means to join, to, to tie together into a whole. Or peace is not just the absence of something, it's the presence of everything. Peace is wholeness, it's, it's wellness, it's, it's rightness. And the risen Christ comes, peace, my fearful, failed, confused, conflicted disciples. How wonderful that Christ's first word was peace, not rebuke, peace, not blame, peace, not any word about their complete and utter failure, their abandonment, their denial of him, their sin. Even then, his first word is peace. Truly, John 7, 46, no one ever spoke like this man. And no one ever loved like this man, and no one ever comforted like this man. Imagine the relief and the instantaneous move from conflict to peace, from fear to rest, from grief to relief, all at this one word from Christ. I can't decide which first word is better. Last week's Mary, or this week's peace. You can make a case for either one. And Jesus is going to repeat the peace. We'll see it again next time in verse 21. Jesus said to them, again, peace be with you. Right? This is the true eulogy in Greek, the good word. This is the true benediction in Latin, the good saying or good word. This is the fulfillment of what Christ has been promising to them and to us. This is what he is all about for his people. This is what his work is all about. This is what God in Christ is doing in you and for you and hopefully through you. This is why Christ is named in a text that we cannot keep using only on Christmas. Isaiah 9, 6. He is the Prince of Peace. The angels announce at his birth, Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Ephesians 2, 14, for he himself is our peace. Why did we need peace? How is Christ the Prince of Peace bringing peace? We've already seen it. But Ephesians 2, 12 tells us we were separated from Christ. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near, there's the communion, by the blood of Christ. That's how he is our peace. His blood is our peace. Because listen, sin is conflict. It's another good uh, alternate definition of sin. Sin is conflict. Sin is conflict with the creator God of life and peace and joy himself. Romans 5.10, because we were sinners, we were enemies with God. That's conflict. You don't want to be enemies with the transcendent God of all power and glory, with the one who stands at the very center of reality. You don't want to be in conflict with the one who is life. But it's while we were enemies that we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so that whole wonderful section actually opens and begins with Romans 5.1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, the gospel, the good news, is an announcement of peace. First and foremost, peace with God. Sin is conflict, separation, absence from the God of life. Christ, our mediator, our substitute, our sacrifice, is our peace. Our peace with God. And that is the thing that you need. If you're here with us and visiting, or if you're here and still not sure about this, you're not a Christian, this is the thing that you need. Peace with God. All conflict is rooted in sin. All conflict is rooted either in our enmity with God, before we know him, or after we have been objectively granted peace with God by grace. All conflict is rooted in our struggle to remember and realize our peace with God. And so Jesus, knowing before this all that was coming, knowing all the conflict, knowing that the disciples would utterly fail him, kept telling them on their last night together, with all of this in mind, again and again and again. John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Right? Troubled equals not at peace. How is that possible? Believe in God. Believe also in me. We would call that too simplistic and too idealistic today. But Jesus, not only the Prince of Peace, but wonderful counselor, keeps telling them, 1427, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let not your hearts be troubled. And his promise of peace there comes right after his promise of the Holy Spirit who will dwell with us and who will be in us, the very spirit of peace. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. It's the very end of the upper room discourse. He's been teaching them for three long chapters. He's been giving them words and he says that it's his words. I have said these things that you may have peace. Words, peace. Word of Christ, peace. So peace is found in the spirit. Peace is found in the word. The spirit and the word that are all about this Christ who is our peace. The point of all that is that the point of all of this is peace. The presence of the prince of peace brings peace and he is present with them in our text and if you are in christ then by definition he is very much present with you and he speaks that peace to them and he repeats that peace to them and he speaks that peace to you and he repeats that peace to you again and again and again that's why we have the word and that's why we come back to it again and again and again philippians 4 6 do not be anxious about anything. I really hate that verse sometimes. Like, what? I'm anxious. Don't be anxious. Thanks. Thanks a lot. How? Verse 5. Right before that, the Lord is at hand. It's presence first. Then do not be anxious. The rest of verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer is how we realize the presence of God. Prayer is how we enter into the presence of God. He is near. He can hear. We must speak. We must 
believe. I need to get the, the anxious, conflicted thoughts out of my head into his hands through prayer. And the result, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise. What a promise. That's different than the peace with God. That's the peace of God. The resurrection of the Son of God is about both peace with God and peace of or from God. This is the, and, and it's, the, it's the realization first of the objective peace that we have with God that results in our increased experience of the subjective peace of God. And it's only as we begin and, and learn to realize this, think like, it's like, like Thursday night with Ephesians 1.3, right? It's only as we remember and realize that we already possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, we've already got it, it's only if I can realize that that I will begin to rest and to stop seeking and struggling and striving and scrambling and, and killing ourselves as we seek blessing, as we seek good somewhere else. It's only as we realize that we are truly at peace with God that we will begin to experience the effects of that and all the conflict that remains both within and without. Christ present means peace and so much more. Point number three, let's get to the gladness. Gladness in the presence of Christ. I just said that the point of all this, the point of the whole storyline of Scripture is peace, and the point of all this is, is gladness. Those two things go together. You cannot have one without the other. The whole Bible is God's response to Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Uh, it's all His response to our sin that separates us from His holy presence, his holy, happy presence. I mean, you know that Psalm 1611 is coming here. You knew that it was coming this whole time. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And it should be obvious that in his presence is fullness of joy only because he is a God of full joy. A God of perfect peace. Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit in, in perfect communion, delighting in and enjoying one another. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's what we're being brought into. Full joy, pleasure, delight, peace. And listen, that's it. That's what I want. All men seek happiness all the time and all that they do. Everything I do and choose is because I believe it in some way will promote my happiness. We are joy seekers because we were created for joy. Now let's see it in our text. Look at verse 20. See first the kindness of the Lord. There is confusion and lack of clarity. Alive, you were dead. And they understand that dead people don't come back to life. This is, this is hard to believe for us and for them. So look at what he does. He shows himself to them. He is kind to give them evidence, proof, confirming the truth and reality of his physical, bodily resurrection. Whatever happened with Jesus and entering into this locked room, he did it with a physical body. Verse 20. When he had said this, the peace, he showed them his hands and his side. Here it is. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
I love the beauty and the simplicity of that line. It's very simple. You've got a subject to the disciples. You've got a verb. They're glad. And then you've got the prepositional, you've got the object, the phrase, when they saw the Lord. It's just simple and beautiful and wonderful. I am glad that John included that. I am glad that this is what God is up to. His glory and our gladness. Our gladness in his glory. I, listen, I cannot help but sound like Piper here because he is correct. God is most glorified us in us when we are most satisfied in him. That has to be correct. As much as Piper has been trumpeting that, just stealing from Edwards, he just stole it all from Edwards, who just stole it all from the Bible. But as much as that's been repeated, I think we generally still tend to miss it. God is for our gladness. And he knows that we will only find true gladness in him. And God is not honored when we are bored with him. God is not honored when I am more interested in sports than him. Right? It's starting to build. The Tar Heels have won like 10 straight. They're probably the best team in the country. And so my heart's starting to kind of like, ah, like this could be my joy. Like if we can get this championship, that'll be it. Everything will be okay and fine. It's not true. We're going to lose. It's going to fall apart. But even if we do, even if we do win it all, guess what it will provide for me? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I do great dishonor to the Lord if I'm more excited about that and more interested in that than I am him. I do great dishonor to the Lord or we uh, if we are more attentive to social media than to him. I do not honor him when I mope around complaining and grumpy when he has been eternally kind to me in Christ and when he has promised that whatever the hard things are, he, hey, hey by the way, I've promised you that's going to all work out for your eternal good. So I dishonor him when I disbelieve him in my grumpiness. He is not honored as the infinitely beautiful and valuable one when I more treasure and when I am more drawn to things that are comparatively nothing. He wants your joy more than you do. And he knows where your joy is found much better than you do. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And like peace, Jesus talks a lot about this in their last night together, three nights before this. This is the fulfillment of some of those promises there. We saw him say in 1511, these things I have spoken to you. Again, words. Here are my words. Here's my teaching. I'm telling you about myself. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's what the risen Christ, God himself, is doing for you. And it's absurd. He's saying, my joy, I am the infinite perfectly satisfied, God full of joy. I am teaching you and working on your behalf that that joy, my joy, may be yours, full joy. He told them in 1620, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. 21, there's the uh, the famous uh, metaphor of the sorrow of the, the woman in labor and then that sorrow turning to joy because a life has been born in to the world. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And we don't have time for it now, but I argued then that Jesus there refers both to our text and the joy in them seeing the risen Lord and to the joy that cannot be taken from us 
as we await the joy of seeing our returning Lord. And I think it's about both. Whatever approach you take, whatever it is, it's all about joy. 17.13, he even prayed for your joy. These things I speak. Notice again, it's speaking, it's words. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Again, that last night, right before, as he's approaching his suffering, his great moment of, of his death and an unimaginable uh, spiritual suffering as he bears the sin of all his people and the wrath of God of all his people, building up to that, he's talking about peace, 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 joy, joy, joy. Because this is what he's doing. Remember, joy, kera, in the Greek, built on the same root of grace, charis, in the Greek, Greek, joy is gladness because of grace. And God has been infinitely gracious to us in Christ. And thus, in our right minds, by faith, we have infinite reason to be glad. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Well, we talked a lot about grief last week. Remember, twice Mary is asked, Woman, why are you weeping? And why are we weeping? Why are we sad? It's for many reasons. There can be a multitude of reasons why we might be sad. But sometimes, for me at least, we are sad because we cannot see the Lord. Because we do not see the Lord. Because we have taken our eyes off of the Lord. Are you looking for the Lord? Are you looking to the Lord? It's a question that we all need to really examine and consider sometimes. Like, where do we really expect to find happiness? Where do we believe that we will find it? True happiness is found in looking for the right things from the right things. It's found in looking for the right things from the right things. Sadness comes when we look for the wrong things from the right things, as in God, right thing. Hey, you promised to make me healthy and wealthy. I am neither of those. So I am sad, right? But that's the wrong thing, right? Right God, right thing there, expecting the wrong thing. Or sadness comes when we look for the wrong things from the wrong things, right? Being liked and affirmed on social media will make me happy. More money will satisfy me. This sinful relationship will bring me joy. Wrong things from the wrong things. Happiness is looking for the right things from the right things. Expectations. What do you expect out of this life? Last Sunday, I foolishly shared with you one of my idols, comfort, and one of our family phrases, which it's good, but it can be a manifestation of my idol. Uh, DBD, right? Don't be difficult. And how much I dislike difficulty. Be careful. Be careful what you say uh, from the pulpit. My wife was like, ha, you're an idiot. Um, she didn't say that. But God never, 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 never promises us a difficult, free, a difficulty-free life. In fact, Christ specifically promises us the opposite. I read for you John 16, a moment ago, and you were loving it. You're like, great, this is good. But I only read part of it because I love the first part. And I would rather ignore the second part. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome 
the world. Take heart, Jesus says, you will have trouble. Difficulty is a definite, but Christ promises peace in the midst of difficulty. He promises the possibility of calm, settled, glad hearts in the midst of whatever storm may be raging around us. And that is only possible in the knowledge of the truth that he has already overcome both your sin and death itself and the whole world that is set in opposition to you and to him. And that means that we must learn that we do not and we cannot look to those things to find our happiness to the self and to the world. That means that we cannot expect and demand that everything go comfortably and well for ourselves in this world because Christ never promises that. He promises infinitely and eternally better than that. We will only begin to experience true happiness and peace as we begin to look to those things, the things that are above, the heavenly places, and not the things that are below. Right? Where do you expect to find happiness? The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, we are going to end with mission. Uh, why aren't we ending with mission? Because I'm long-winded and not very good at this. But also because of the important connection between verses 21, 22, and 23. And J.C. Ryle says these verses contain hard things to understand, and I think he's right. And I want us to work hard to understand those things, because I think they're really, really important. What does it mean that Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit? What about Acts 2? The rushing wind, the tongues of fire, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. What does this have to do with that? I think that's important. What does it mean when we forgive the sins or withhold forgiveness from others? That's weird. Those verses are too difficult and too important to pass over too quickly. Plus, I'm just trying to hold on to John for as long as I can. And mission and membership has a nice ring to it. Um, so come back next time. But, but, I am also at least saving mission in part. Because it's not what we most and first need. I have dozens. I have a whole section of a bookshelf on missions and evangelism read them all. We brought a missionary in uh, to come and speak with us back in the fall. We, we've talked about it uh, countless times. We did a whole Sunday school series on it. We've talked about it countless times, even in, in this series on John. Back in 1527, the sermon was titled, Loving Witness to a Hating World. All the way back in chapter 1, over three years ago, the sermon on 119 was titled, You Are a Witness. And there were many in between. It's not complicated. You are sent. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We'll, we'll unpack that in more detail, but it's not complicated. Jesus is alive. Now tell somebody, Mary, I have seen the Lord. That's, that's evangelism. That's all that it is. But it's this third point that is key. That's in part, at least, why we're stopping here. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Have you seen the Lord and are you glad? That's the fuel and the fire for mission. That's the motive for the mission. That's why the order of our text is, is so brilliant and important. It's, it's the risen, present Christ, entirely by grace, initiating, coming to his people. The result is peace. The result is gladness. Then 
It's the mission. We're going to continue to struggle with the mission until we begin to truly grasp the glory and grace of the Lord and be glad in and for and with Him. That doesn't mean we don't need the training and the classes. It doesn't mean that we don't need practical advice and some just plain old grit and discipline when it comes to our commission of sent to speak. Tell your coworkers you're a Christian. Invite people to church. Ask someone if you can pray for them. Tell someone that you have seen the Lord and that he is good and that you are glad. All that is good, but this is foundational. Our growing communion with and joy in the Lord. It starts with realizing that this whole thing is about presence. The presence of the holy God with his sinful people entirely by grace. We increasingly realize that presence by faith as the Spirit does his work through the living and active word. We increasingly realize that this presence comes with peace and gladness as we behold the glory of the glad Lord, the Prince of Peace, and are are transformed as we behold him. Americans are suffering at a rate rarely reached. People are miserable because of the toxic health hazard of social media. We have such an opportunity. Such an opportunity. Not to contextualize or to, or to come down or to kind of speak to them in their terms or to be like them. Or, hey, look, we, we're, we're just, we, we can do it too. We, we're just like all, all this. We can be like the world. But we have such an opportunity to be different and to be weird. We have such an opportunity to be glad and to announce the glad tidings of great joy that we have seen the living Lord. That's the only thing that the world needs from us. And it can do all the other things better than we can do them. Let's not try to do what the world is doing. Let's do the one thing that only we can do and the one thing that we were specifically commissioned to do by the risen Lord. Go. You are sent. Tell someone that you have seen the Lord. Let's give ourselves to seeing the Lord by faith through his word. You cannot do this without his word. You cannot do the mission without his word. You cannot do the first important part. You cannot experience the peace and the gladness apart from his word. Remember, they were sad when they couldn't see the Lord. They're glad when they see him. We only see him here through his word. So again, for me, sometimes my sadness comes from refusing to see him here and to come here again and again and again to set my sights on the risen Lord. This is where he is present. This is how he works. Fix and fill your mind with the word of God that can minister to you the very joy of the risen Christ himself. I almost cannot think of Sharon anymore without thinking of her verse, Isaiah 26.3. We just talked about it again two weeks ago, so it's been back on my mind. Write it down, chew on it. Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. It's one of my favorite verses, in part because of Sharon. The only person who has peace is the person whose mind is fixed on God because he trusts in God. Work to stay your mind on him because he will always stay with you. He is always staying with you. It's by faith, it's the mind fixed on him that helps us realize that truth. He is present 
with you always. And there is great peace and gladness to be found in the risen and present Lord. Let me close us with a word of prayer. Father, we ask now for your help. We are entirely dependent upon you. Father, we are always entirely dependent upon you. We don't often always realize uh, the depths of our dependence upon you. Uh, Father, I do especially realize it um, when I am aware of my sometimes lack of, of peace and gladness in you. And sometimes my attempts to stir that up in and for myself. Father, only you can ultimately do that. But you have very graciously and kindly told us the means through which you do that. Father, it's through this, it's through the the corporate worship and the gathering of your saints on the first day of the week, this the Lord's day, the day that Christ rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, you do that, you've told us, uh, through your word, through which you are present with us and and speak to us and comfort us and and encourage us and correct us um, when we need it. So, Father, help me and help all of us to utilize the, the means that you have provided to us, worship and prayer and your word and your ordinances. Father, help us to help one another um, as we seek to do that. But Father, our only hope is that you will then work through those things and that your spirit would wake up our hearts to the great peace and the great joy that we do objectively have uh, by your grace um, in Christ. Father, we pray that you would fill hearts this morning with, with the knowledge of the peace and the gladness that we have in him. May we increasingly seek our joy in you. May we increasingly be a place that understands that the joy of the Lord is our strength and a place where that joy is very evident as we enjoy one another, um, rooted in our joy of you. And as the watching world around us begins to see the happiness and the gladness that we can have in you regardless of what's happening in this world, regardless of our circumstances. Pray that you would use that growing joy to draw more and more sinners to the life and the joy and the peace that is found only in Christ. Father, these are things that only you can do. And so we ask now that you would do them for your glory and for our good. In the name of Jesus, amen.